Even going from that jump was like another fear. Oh, my, my practice is going to fall apart. You know, it was the mm-hmm. fear of change and shift. And again, it was looking in the mirror and saying, well, you know, what's your training? What is, you know, I had to really talk myself out of this fear base. And for me, like that, that and I realized that that's just not in my business. It's in my personal. There's always fear there. And I have to blast through it. Welcome to CMTW Podcast. Okay, today we have Robert Yakos. Robert is a 2005 graduate of the New England School of Acupuncture. He works and lives in Massachusetts. And I think Robert's story is really going to resonate with a lot of people today because he, he's, he went through a lot of the same things that we do. He went through a lot of the same struggles in, uh, in practicing after graduating, figuring, figuring it out on his own, and, uh, and then struggling again, and then finding success. So I think that this will be a good, a good podcast for us to really dive in and, and find out what his experiences uh, were and, and how he overcame them and what is he's, he's doing today. So I'm really excited. Uh, we have Danielle on as well. And Robert, uh, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Josh. Awesome. Hi, Robert. So I'm really excited to have you on today because this is part one of a two-part uh, podcast uh, series, I guess you can say. I don't know. And uh, I think today we're just going to really find out what your struggles were, how you, um, you know, what happened after you graduated and, and how you overcame this, uh, you know, this very common poverty mindset that we have scarcity mentality, poverty mindset, and how it affects the way we practice and how it negatively affects our lives. And also how we are able to, you know, treat patients as well. Um, this isn't just about us. It's about our patients. So Robert, um, Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want, let's go right into so it. So, where should we start, start here, Josh? What, what would you like to What would you like to hear? How should we unravel? I want this? you to spill your guts. I want you to just like let it all out. <laughs> Tell us everything that happened, all of your pain and sorrow, and and all of yeah, your struggles. Uh, Build it up for us. Perfect. Really set the tone, because I think a lot of people are going to be going to be able to relate to this. I really do. I think they're going to say, "Hey, you know what? I I was there, or I'm there right now." And, uh, you know, how many people almost quit, you know, and, or did quit and then picked it up again. So let's go right from the right. time you graduated and go, went into practice and give us a little background on what your mindset was at the time. Sure. So going back to school, I was uh, curious about everything. I, I loved this medicine. I thought it was amazing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't freshly out of undergrad. I actually um, had a quite a successful uh, career, and I lived and worked overseas. Uh, that's a whole other story in itself. But um, when I went to acupuncture school, I wanted to learn everything. I loved it all. I wanted to learn the, the herbal. I wanted to learn the acupuncture, um, so much so that when I was in school, it, it was my full-time job. Um, I was... Mm-hmm. I went after it. So when I when I really get my heart set on something, like I go after it. 
So I studied the Japanese program, I, the Japanese acupuncture program, the Chinese herbal medicine program, uh, the traditional uh, traditional Chinese medicine track as well. And I did continue in ed when I was at school. And while I was at school, I went to and I assisted when I was in that school at um, the most well-known practitioners in the area. I wanted to know what their secret sauce was. I wanted to know their technique. I wanted to know what their practice looked like. I wanted to, I wanted to emulate them. And um, so I, I was pretty confident by the time I graduated that I had the technical expertise down um, for the most part of, of getting started. Um, but I, I delayed a year and I did an apprenticeship in uh, acupuncture. I worked in a, uh, one of my professor's clinics for a year and um, I learned a lot. And you know, at the end of that, that apprenticeship, it was a full on about 60 hours a week. We did continuing ed um, classes. He was a professor of continuing ed. And uh, we traveled around uh, the area, New York, um, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, too. So I was doing 60, 70 hours a, a week just in his clinic and doing the continuing ed work and teaching classes at the New England School of Acupuncture. At the end, or after about a year, uh, we had a baby coming on on the way. So I was basically saying, okay, this, life is getting serious here. I've got to start my own practice. Um, I took a hit initially when I was doing the apprenticeship. Um, I wanted to just get the experience. I wanted to see as many people and feel as many pulses and abdomens as possible and really get my skills up there. And at the end of the year, I said, okay, great. Um, I'm going to open up my own shop, and I found a business partner, and we opened up a clinic. And we were very much like-minded um, at the time when we started, and that was great because it, I could defray some of the costs financially, and we could open up a space that was quite large, about 2,800 square feet, and um, it was manageable. So within the first month um, that I opened, my son was was born too, and everything was great. I was, I was so happy. Uh, things were going in the right way. I knew it was going to be hard, but I, I, was, I had the fire in the belly. I wanted to talk to as many people and um, talk to them about this medicine and get them in the clinic. So a month after I opened the doors with my partner, lo and behold, I saw a lump on my neck. And uh, it turns out, long story short, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So a little bit of a uh, mixed thing because I can tell how many years I've been in private practice by the age of my son. <laughs> so luckily, luckily things turned out okay. Got, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, it was about eight months of treatment, both chemotherapy and radiation. And you know, it was going through my head during that time, okay, what's going to be happening here? Um, I think I can do it. I practiced at the, at the time, like my, my time that, that I wasn't having treatment. I would take a couple of days off after treatment, then go into the clinic. I remember my hands were freezing cold, like I was having cold sweats and things like that. I was always having a cup of hot tea to keep my hands warm so that I wouldn't uh, shock the patients when I touched them. Mm-hmm. I knew I could get through this, and I, and I knew the prognosis was really good, but it, it was a scary time in my life. I, didn't, I had this financial obligation that was there. Uh, I had this treatment schedule that was intense, but I knew that – I just knew in my heart of hearts that, that things were going to turn out okay. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then I, I started. So good news is within about three months of the clinic's doors being open, 
and going through treatment at the same time, we were actually cash flow positive, so we were actually making a little bit of profit, not much, um, but a little bit. We were covering our expenses and then having a little bit of money coming in, which was really good. During that time, though, it was you know it wasn't all roses and it was good news. I really thought I was going to have to move into the clinic um, with with my family because it was it was we were hard strapped. Um, uh, so. It was a scary time, too, but we were making a profit, but it wasn't enough to actually have any quality of living. We actually started out in Boston and had to move to a, a, a city about an hour outside of Boston, Worcester, and then we set up shop because family was there. Long story short, uh, it was really scary, but um, things gradually began to, to build from there. Um, so that that was that was pretty much the the the, the first six months were just kind of getting things going and getting me feeling better too, and then from there things started to snowball a little bit, little by little by little. Um, we did a lot of presentations. We got out there um, with with my my shaved head. <laughs> People are like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> like, "Yeah, I'm just sporting a look here." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was kind of like the first year. So, um, you know, I, I I remember for me it, it was one of those things where it didn't I was in the do mode. It was getting through, getting the treatments done. I had 8 months of going through this. Every session was a win for me and um enough so that I could actually practice and um to make it work in the clinic. And things and numbers were going um, better and better, and I had to look for the hope in everything. So, it, you know, it wasn't one of those times where I was saying, oh, holy shit, life sucks, and mm-hmm. um, I might as well close things up. I knew that I must um, go forward. And that gave, me, that gave me a reason to get up when I felt like shit. And um, yeah, and patients were really understanding and the such. So I mean, that, that was that was the the first year. And by the time the first year uh, finished, things really started to snowball to the fact that that um, I was probably at the end of the first year, I was between 70 and 80 patients. Um, but during that time, it, there was something that that, that is really important. Um, and going back to your question about the poverty mindset and what happened, I, I came from a very um, Interesting background. My mom was a teacher, and my dad was, uh, he was always in between jobs. And so I didn't want to be like my dad in between jobs, and I wanted to, to go forward. So I always had that in my mind. And mm-hmm. when I was overseas, I had a really good, uh, successful career. In fact, that it probably took me about 10 years to make what uh, now what I was making when I was overseas. So it wasn't like I always was stuck in uh, the mindset, but when you have a really big prognosis or a big diagnosis like that, it throws you back, and it kind of throws you back into your own fears. And so when you have it, you're against kind of all odds, you kind of slip back into, like, the mentality that you had once in your life, or you're not good Mm. enough, or you're kind of thinking about um, worst-case scenarios. So during my time when I was was first starting out, we we were piss poor, you know, lots of debt from school. Um, Mm. I didn't take – I had some savings that that, um, I paid off, but there was clinic startup costs, too. And the such, and I remember during that time, um, my professor that I was uh, did the apprenticeship with, he gave me treatments, um, and after chemo, after radiation, in between, and I was like, oh my God, like thank God, 
thank God I have that because it was like a light switch. I felt like shit, and then I would have the the, the uh, acupuncture session, and it was like this fog that lifted off over my body, and I just felt amazing. And I remember saying, I couldn't afford this. Mm. Thank God he helped me. So it kind of started then when I was so poor after school that, and, you know, when we were in school, we were also treating one another for free. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we were all treating one another. We all had needles stuck all the time. So we kind of got into that culture too. And um, it, it was one of those things where after I, I started school too, when I was in clinic, I would have patients that, that would start a treatment plan. And when we first started, and this is kind of funny, I would start out and I looked at the prices of the people in the area and I said, okay, let's, let's go a little bit higher so we don't have to raise our prices um, anytime soon. And so I would have people that were coming in and they would be getting great results, you know, within three, four, five treatments. And they weren't done with their plan yet as far as, you know, my plan for them, but they would leave mm -hmm. and then they would say, oh, it's getting too expensive. And yeah. I was like, shit, it happened again. <laughs> They left because <laughs> so it's all it's not just death by you know one cut it's like a thousand cuts so all these different mm. things happen and then it just happened that that I stumbled upon community acupuncture and I heard the message that the community acupuncture group um, was saying and it resonated so deeply with me I was like oh my gosh yeah we got to make this affordable to everybody everybody mm -hmm. and it fit in with right where I was at and it worked. Um, it worked for my practice at that time because you know, I was passionate about the message, the philosophy that they had, and I could convey it to patients. So after I, I was convinced about the philosophy, this is the way that we roll, um, I just heralded the news and spread the good news. And guess what? The clinic exploded. We were at you know, for me, it was 100, 110 per week. Um, I was feeling good, so I could, I could treat it. I was doing distal acupuncture at the time, which I piloted as a pain clinic, and it worked. So I said, let's just do it all the time. And I got some um, zero-gravity recliners uh, cheap off of Craigslist, and boom, bada-boom, bada-bing. A clinic was set up, and people were coming, and the referrals were just happening. I was moving along. I was stuffing cash in my pockets. I didn't have a cash drawer. <laughs> and it was really a makeshift bootstrapping clinic that was just getting um, momentum. Um, I didn't really mm. think about systems at that point. It was just, let's get people going. I didn't talk to them. I had a little report of findings that kind of worked. Um, and it served me well. So as the clinic started growing, I was really in despair about the state of our profession, about the failure rate of acupuncturists, about jobs um, that weren't out there. And so I was saying, okay, well, let's bring in more acupuncturists. And my partner at the time was resistant to having acupuncturists there, understandably so, um, because we were both um, wanting to, our practices to thrive. And so after about five years of being in practice with, um, by a relatively successful in, in all ways, you know, as far as making a living, a decent living, serving the community, um, and growing and having new patients come in, I decided after year five to open another clinic to satiate more jobs for acupuncturists and helping more people. And 
And also by that time, I was almost out of debt or had a good chunk of my debt from school being paid off. At mm-hmm. that point, things took another change there and it was a big shift. So, you know, I'll pause there if, if, if there's, there's any questions or I can keep well, on going. I think the community model, it's interesting because it's all relative as well, like where you were at the time how well you were doing. It's interesting, the outside factors that cause us to change how we practice, you know, and, and, and decide. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I used the community model and I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the fast pace. The distal acupuncture um, is fun. Distal acupuncture is fun to use. It's effective. It's, it's not the end all say all, but right. um, it's, it's interesting because it sounds like you did, you're doing pretty well, but you did have reason you you made decisions based on maybe other um, outside reasons, but it actually ended up working okay for for you at least financially. Um, but that might have been good enough for a while. Did something change where suddenly eh, the community model wasn't what you wanted to do? You saw some some things that had to change. So in other words, you were doing well. Why did, why did you change that or what happened to, to make you do oh, well, things different? I, I think the biggest thing was, it was me as a clinician in my clinic was one thing. It was when mm-hmm. I added another clinic, it really started to show the, the, the holes in my model. And um, also as far as like what I thought wasn't what everybody else thought. So let me explain a little bit more. When I opened up the, my second clinic, I had a sliding scale, and uh, it was between 20 and $40 sliding scale, second clinic, and I had other acupuncturists that, that, that uh, were working at that clinic. I wasn't working in both clinics. That was number one um, issue, and as a result of that, what I conveyed to patients weren't the same as what my other practitioners were conveying to patients. Okay, hmm. so it wasn't how I was explaining things. So that was part of my systems. Although we went through training, the setting up the treatment plan, setting up the report of findings was not the same between what I was doing there in my clinic and what they were doing. And as a result, that clinic was it was like a revolving door. We would have lots of people coming in, and I sampled different things. I wanted when people said don't do something, I wanted to try it and see if it worked, if it made sense. So right. we did Groupon. We got people through the door. Framingham actually retained pretty well with the Groupon type of things. And it it's was amazing. right at the very beginning. So people didn't realize the power of it at the very beginning. And it was a great kind of a jump start. Um, and I'm not doing Groupon now, but at the time it really served a purpose as far as awareness for clinics. Um, mm. But, you know, going back to, to that other location, I, I started having uh, retention rates as far as practitioners. So a practitioner would come and go. I wasn't the owner, um, and it wasn't a correct model because it didn't provide incentives for people to stay long-term. And as a result, I was the one responsible for the lease. And having a, a model that would scale really took a good, sound business model practices there, which I really found were my weakness in that area. So I was I had a substantial lease over there. I had people that were coming and going. I would get acupuncturists in there for a short period of time. We'd get patients in there. The average visit would be four or six sessions, and they would leave. 
So we would have to get lots of people through the door, and it became a revolving door. And it became frustrating because people in, in my clinic would stay for you know, 20 sessions or for years. So I've got, had people in my clinic now that have been there for 12 years. Um, wait, and wait, Robert, were these, were these both community clinics? The one that both your clinic is community the one? clinics. So right, what, 10 miles away from one another. What made you decide to – you had a clinic doing well, 100 patients or so a week, and then you said, let me go ahead and open another clinic to hire people. I mean, what, what the hell were you thinking? Why would you do that? Is well, that like again, you know, it, okay, or, or was it only okay it was. at that time? And then you wanted to grow and you wanted, you know – you know, I, I wasn't doing it for the money. As you know, if I got some money for my family, that would have been great. Um, but I was doing it for the the profession that was in um, a dismal state, the the failure rates for acupuncturists, and I realized that I can only help so many people with my with my own hands. Yet right, this medicine right. is so amazing. So I was okay. so passionate about the medicine that I, I really wanted to create something bigger. Um, and really change things within the profession and get that kind of um, feeling and that ability to create jobs. Uh, it, it didn't work out the way I <laughs> intended it to. But yet, the clinic stayed open for about five years. So, And after a while, I, I just realized, you know what? Things aren't working the way I wanted. It was a big stress, a stressor. And I remember one day that I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't make payroll work. I'm stressing about the numbers. I was starting to look mm. at uh, my phone all the time to see if we had enough money in the bank to pay people. And I oh. remember I almost got in an accident. On the, I was on the road checking the, you know, a, a message that came in from my bank, which I was just a wreck. And I said, forget it. And that was yeah. uh, probably about 10 years into to my uh, career. And after I did that, things shifted uh, in a big way. And um, it, it, it really took t it put two clinics into one, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. So the last five years, I remember after t ten years of in clinic, I felt like I was practicing anew, and um, hmm. I had to look for the the reasons why and what I needed to change, and um, that that was hard. It was really hard. Did you abandon the community clinic model, and why? I did. But only um, about three years ago. So okay. I was doing a, a version of the community. It wasn't a true community model where we had slide and scale. I basically evolved it from doing slide and scale because I, I couldn't anticipate my cost if somebody was paying at the bottom of the scale or mm -hmm. at the top of the scale. So mm -hmm. it was, And it also, from a time perspective, one of the reasons why I did community is I wanted it to be quick so that we do quick se uh, sessions so that, that people would get better, and it was pretty straightforward. But communicating the sliding scale was really uh, cumbersome, and, and it made people feel awkward, too, that we're checking out. It was if they were at the low end and they can only afford at the low end, a lot of people felt guilty that they could only pay at the low end. Or if right. they were, they could pay on the high end and they paid at the low end, they felt guilty because they should have been paying on the high end. So it was um, a little bit confusing there. And to hire people that would, like my front desk, I needed to have and predict revenue that was coming in so that I could understand my costs. 
right. and um, mm-hmm. to pay people. And that was really, mm-hmm. really important. And even now, um, that was something that I had to search for for years to make sure that, that I had a consistent stream of income month over month. Um, and we can talk about that later. Yeah, I mean, a lot of physical therapists and, and, and other practitioners just have an open room concept. We don't even, ha- don't even have to call it community clinic, but open room concept where they charge a flat fee and mm-hmm. they work, I don't want to say efficiently, because you can have multiple rooms and work efficiently. So it's not necessarily more efficiently, but you can work in an, and there are advantages to working in an open setting. One thing I enjoyed was the, um, see, I didn't have a community clinic where people couldn't talk. I allowed them to talk and it mm-hmm. created a really fun environment, energ- fun. energetic right. and fun. And, and people got to talk to each other. And, and oftentimes they, excuse me, they spoke about why they were there and how acupuncture had helped them. So you have basically free advertising right there. Right. And, and people are very open about, um, they weren't, you know, if they offered up why they were there and what they're, some people were very open about why they were there, but it just created a lot of good. And I think only one time we had politics come up, which, you know, you, you have to be careful <laughs> with in that setting, but yeah. it was rare. You have to redirect. You have yeah. to redirect or just tell them, you know, hey, don't don't talk about that. But uh, yeah, so it's yeah. a good and, model, and then, but it has. So you you stopped the community model, but or do you still have I an open? Did, uh, right now, I do. So do. I have, yeah, I do, and I actually morphed it. So I I, I morphed the model being slide and scale, and what I wanted to do was get away from that. So I, I started doing 10 packs. I started doing 20 packs. I started doing 50 packs. Um, and at a um, basically discounted price, if, if they buy in bulk, they receive discount. And mm-hmm. I, that's my first step away from the sliding scale. So they can either mm-hmm. do pay as you go or do one of the packages where they get a little bit more discount. And um, that changed things and helped out considerably. So that started to predict revenue a little bit better in income. And um, and basically I had a big physical space that I didn't carve out the rooms for. So I needed to make it work um, of the space that I had. So you know, for, for me it was also a, hey, listen, is, is my, are my treatments going to change if I have a single room versus a open room? And I had to take it back and say, hey, listen, you know, you're getting acupuncture. You're getting me. You're getting the skills that I have. So whether right. it's in a, on a sidewalk, in a field, whether it's in a room with a queen-size bed or a king-size bed, you're still getting acupuncture. And even if you look at the acupuncture codes, it doesn't say, do you get a king-size bed or a queen-size bed or a single room or a group room. It's just acupuncture. So you're getting paid for doing acupuncture. It doesn't matter where you're at. If you're doing specialized techniques and and you need uh, people to have some privacy, that's a little bit different. Um, But for the most part, it doesn't really matter the room unless you have uh, an area that you want to have consults in, which which we do in the the clinic, separate from the the treatment area. Um, But but Mm -hmm. it's a good model that you you can create your own model and framework. You just use it as a guide, and then you can create it. Um, and that's fine, and it works. And if you're strapped with, you know, for space, it's a good way of doing it without having and saying, well, you need four or six rooms. No, make it work. You're, you're getting acupuncture. Do you right? have tables and, and screen dividers? Uh, yeah, I like, do. Because um, you do trigger point, you do motor point work, you do that sort of I, orthopedic. Right. 
So I had two big treatment areas. Uh, so I, I could put uh, seven treatment. I had seven treatment uh, stations in one room, and seven in the other. And what I did with the other room, and and another individual room. So I had all in all, I had 14 areas that I could treat in. Um, from a recliner side of things. So I basically cut it in half and had seven recliners, and then I, I put curtains and then put tables in it, and like the medical curtains. And mm-hmm. that worked out great. And so that became mm-hmm. more of like if I'm doing trigger points and people have like a, a twitch and they're, they're a little bit more vocal at times, um, we allow that one to be a little bit more, uh, let's put it, uh, noisy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a really so great concept. People understand. They, they, so yeah. yeah, so they understand if they're going to the, the the east or west side that it's a little bit different of a culture in that room. And uh, you know, working efficiently, whether it's multiple private rooms um, or these open concepts, which are great, you're working much more efficiently in delivering acupuncture, and you're you're really you're not going to get. It's ironic because. You don't get any more burned out. I think it's actually easier. And sitting around is is what you know is the most difficult. Oh, when I, you're waiting for a patient, a right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you're in movement, then mm-hmm. you're you're just it's like tai chi. After a while, it's just efficient. You've got your stride. It's mm-hmm. not rushed. You have this internal clock that you know that you have a certain amount of time, and you you make it work. And then after the end of the day, you just feel like you've helped so many people. And that's really how acupuncture can be delivered. I think a lot of uh, – and I'm not knocking it because I think there's room for all different approaches, but I think in this country there is this idea that acupuncture – is related to a spa treatment. It's, oh, you know, you have mm-hmm. a full hour and you do a front treatment and a back treatment because that's what they did in school. And you, mm-hmm. you know, you have the music on, again, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's this whole experience where you just take your time and, and the patient comes in and they're in another world. And patients don't want to be, what I found is many of them do not want to be in your clinic longer than they have to be. They start thinking about right. all the stuff they have to do, and they like to right. be moved in and out. You know, you'll get to get some of them. You know, if they fall asleep in a chair, we we won't wake them up. But you know, right. other than that, we're moving them through, and it's it's a it's a great system. But I want to go back to something that we kind of touched on. There were times in your career that you made decisions. It sounds like you had a good hold on making sound decisions based on real numbers, which is something that we're going to be talking more with you mm-hmm. in, in part two of this. And also with uh, Rebecca, uh, we've had a past podcast with her. She, she's big into finances and you have to deal with real numbers, but were there, there, it seems like there were times when you made decisions based on other factors. Like I want to help the profession and I want to help practitioners because there aren't many job opportunities and people are struggling which is mm-hmm. awesome, but your clinic has to be there. So the people that can do that have clinics that are really systems in place, top-notch uh, delivery and consistency. And again, you and I will get into that in the next um, episode. Mm-hmm. But so if, if I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there were a couple of times when you made decisions outside of, hey, this makes financial sense. This makes sense 
you know, with the numbers, but instead made decisions for other reasons. Is that is that so? I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, without a doubt. And you know, with with the numbers and with the budgeting and looking at the expenses and knowing from a logical perspective if it works on paper, um, that's something that I would uh, it, I was forced to go there. Um, mm-hmm. And Rebecca and I are, are, have a very common background as far as the financial programs. I had to search this out. I had to understand how to run a business. But guess what? Running a business is the same as the family. Um, if your business is a mess, your family is a mess. If your family is a mess, your your clinic is a mess as far as financials, mm-hmm. as far as energy, flow, everything like that. So right. one thing that, that, that I think was a big takeaway is if there's a problem in your house, with your relationship with your wife, with your finances, personal finances, if there's a, a problem with your clinic and your, your, your clinic is not thriving, the, it's easy to diagnose. It's simple. Mm. Just walk when over you to have the mirror control over it. Yeah. and you okay. look in the mirror and you see the reason right there. That's you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right. you. And you have to understand, well, what is it about you that this is not working? And it's all right if it's not, you know, if it's not working, you know the, the problem and you know the solution. It's right mm-hmm. there in the mirror. So then you have to kind of un- unravel things to understand, well, what's going on here? And I, at that point, I hit rock bottom hmm. and a couple times. You know, one is at the very beginning as far as, you know, starting up my first clinic and, you know, going through the, the medical issues. Two is when my, my, my second clinic was failing. And I had this big financial burden on my hands. And, you know, I I can't understate how bad it was to the point where I had to figure out, what the hell am I doing here? Like, how am I, why, I've got this most beautiful medicine in the world, and I can't deliver it to the people that need it. And we're not creating the jobs that that we need to, to create. And so it was all about me. So I had to look inside a profession. I had to look outside of our profession as well. And professionals like coaches, I had to seek out and understand what am I doing wrong? What am I doing right in Framingham? But what am I doing wrong in this other location? And so that pain, mm. it, it made me look for answers. And so that, that, that was really, really important to do. So that's when I had to go to systems. And you know, so, one of the biggest books that helped me was the, the EMATH myth by Michael Gerber. Um, and I realized that my systems weren't the same in Framingham as they were um, at my other locations. Framingham is where I practice. And so I, I had to kind of look at the playbook, how I did acupuncture here, and really look at the systems. I wanted to have it consistent for every patient that came in, the same exact experience, and to see how they were meted, uh, met and um, greeted by the front desk, what was the smells that, that they would experience when they go into the clinic, what was how they were received as far as doing the intake, oh, the report of findings, the whole experience in the clinic, what was the, the recliner like, was how was it prepped, what was the treatment area like, and it had to be consistent in the messages and echoed by the front desk, by me, by other practitioners. That was really, really important. Um, and a huge education from there. And then also looking at the numbers, too, of the clinic of how much is a patient, what are my costs, minus, you know, how much revenue that I'm getting or vice versa, and then understanding, can I bring on another practitioner? Can I hire a front desk? 
it really forced me to look at the numbers in a strong way and also debt payment too and making sure that that number was um, in there as well. And um, it was only from like my pain, and I wish I knew this at the very beginning so I didn't have to do and go through undue um, suffering, but yeah. it, it kind of galvanized you. And that's why a lot of people fail, I think, is that there's a lot of obstacles when you come through practice, and there aren't a lot of um, resources out there, at least when I started. There are an abundance now, but it's how to kind of navigate through that. And um, I was in, that was important. I was, there, there were a lot of huge lessons there. But I think people just need to know that they're not going through it alone. A lot of people are going through it, and there are options out there. You opening your second clinic forced you to take a look at your at your primary clinic as well. It sounds like because yes. systems weren't there, so this was a learning experience for you. Where it seemed like, hey, I have a I have a busy clinic. Your 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 own clinic. Let's say your one in uh, Framingham. I think right right was that? Mm-hmm. No, that was right. your. That's was that your? That's your primary clinic. Okay. The, the, the primary is Framingham. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. You're like, hey, I'm doing great. And then you open up this other clinic and say, hey, I'm doing okay, but there's a lot of room for improvement. And I can see right. why these things are important. So, you know, it's um, it's interesting because you can be seeing a lot of patients doing well, but you could also have, be missing a lot and be facing a lot of burnout. So it's not, it's not the sense right. in your case, it wasn't the sense of necessarily a poverty mentality, but we do see that very common in the field where it's, you know, I'm just not going to do well in this field and I can't do well because I have to save the world and make sure that everybody can get this, this, uh, mm-hmm. and if you have that as your primary cause, um, then you will be limited, but there is a way to make it accessible to people, but also make your life a lot easier and do well for yourself, which is okay. It's okay to do that in this field, which, you know, there's, there's a huge problem uh, with that kind of mentality, but you, you, you didn't really, you weren't primarily driven by that, but you did have to get rid of the sliding scale because it didn't make sense for you as far as being able to, like you said, plan and, you know, know what your income was going to be and what, what you can, you know, pay on your expenses. So you did have to drop the yeah, scale. I think, you know, to that point, Josh, it, it, the poverty mentality was more like my pricing is mm-hmm. that when I, I knew that I had to go away from that sliding scale, it was the fear. The uh, underlying okay. every kind of change was the fear. Okay, the fear of, oh, my gosh, I've got this amazing clinic, this amazing model. I'm going to – I need to get away from that that price. All, all the people are going to leave. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm just yep. going to my, – my, my practice is going to collapse. That was one when mm. I went from the sliding scale to more of a fixed fix, uh, cost. Then when I went from my fixed cost, I, I held that for a while. I'm like, Phew. okay, okay, catch your breath. <laughs> <laughs> okay, people didn't leave, and then I realized, guess what? You know, this isn't sustainable for long term. Okay, and then you know, over the, in the course of the year, from our years, I went from, I think my average price was around fifty, and 
then my average, well, my, my pay-as-you-go pricing is 130 per session. So I am mm-hmm. one of the most expensive in the area per, per session pricing. So, and even going from that jump was like another fear. Oh, my, my practice is going to fall apart. You know, it was the mm-hmm. fear of change and shifting. And again, it was looking in the mirror and saying, well, you know, what's your training? What is, you know, I had to really talk myself out of this fear base. And for me, like that, that, and I realized that that's just not in my business. It's in my personal. There's always fear there and I have to blast through it. And that became after a while, my litmus test. Are you fearing it? If you're fearful, why is that happening? And is it rational or is it irrational? And, you know, to kind of talk and to go through my checklist and say, no, you've got to go through this. You can't have any mm. regrets at any point in your life. So that's kind of how I live my life is that, that the fear meter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The, is, the, what is your fear level here? Um, there was something I was going to uh, go with that. Oh, this is something that we'll touch on more in part two as well. But real quick, um, do you think, though, that with your change in price structure and with the systems in place, that your patients are getting a better experience and getting uh, better care now than they were, not that they weren't before, but do you feel that those changes that you made, are they're not purely financially driven, but are they also driven to make the patient experience better, to prevent drop-offs and, and things of that nature? Yeah, Without a doubt. So, you know, what I've always, I've always looked at my my practice. If something's not working, if there's a comment on the practice, if there's a criticism, criticism or a complaint or an objection, I have to realize: do is it a criticism? Is it a bad thing? Is it something that we need to change? And look at changing it and implementing it. So, I'm always looking at the experience that a patient has from very beginning when they come in until the end. So does the quality of the the treatment get better? Yes. So from training me, so as you know, know, for a long time, just to go go back to Chinese medicine that works, so I I basically had a lot of different tools that I was refining um, from undergrad. Working on that and, you know, doing the teaching and the herbs and things when, when I was out in practice, I got to a level of training. Like, I didn't want to do any more continuing ed for a while. I had more than enough stuff to, to work on. And with with you guys, I was like, hmm, what, what are they doing there? And so I needed to – I was having and hitting certain walls with my practice. And I think with any type of pain that you have in your – or not pain, but any type of obstacles that you have in your practice or your personal life, you have to look at it and say, do I need to elevate my skills? Do I need to change the way that that I'm looking at and grow personally or technically? Which do I need to do? And for some cases that I was having, I was like, I, I'm, I'm at a loss here. I need to mm. look, at, look out elsewhere. And usually when there's that pain, pain can either be a teacher and you change or shift or you just continue on and just, you know, poor me, poor me, poor me. So, you know, right. seeing with you guys, it's like, okay, there's certain things, there's blockages, outages that I had, 
and you help to blow through that with the programs that you offer. A little kick, a little uh, shout out to you guys. So that was partially um, a big shift. That was another shift in my practice was just with the CMTW folks um, in a positive way clinically. And also had a mindset as well. I mean, that's something that Mm -hmm. I always have to work on. It's, It's not that you correct it once. It's a it's a discipline that you have to work on every single day. So, you know, basically when I go into a clinic, do we need to keep this? Does it serve us or is it not serving us any longer and we need a change? So as a, a practitioner, I'm always looking to improve the service and also the, the technical aspect. And my model's evolving over time. It's never stagnant. And even now, um, I'll probably carve out a couple of rooms instead of having an open open room now, um, which is hmm. after 15 years of practice, uh, it, it's something that I, I might do because I like to have my talks with people um, while right. I'm whistling while I'm working, right? So that that's because <laughs> it's me, and that's how I like to work. Um, if you like to work in a different way, you know, have whatever you want to do. But, you know, it's it's something – it's individual. It's personal. Well, I think some of the some of the um... – uh, systems that you're putting in place are universal, right? They can be applied mm-hmm. in other clinics. Everybody can kind of do their own thing, but then still use common skills that that will help their clinic or these common systems, I should say. Um, so right. that's really, I think, the, going to be exciting to talk about. Next time we'll have you on, we'll talk about how you changed, what you changed, what systems you put in place, and how that really helped your clinic grow and really helped you grow as a practitioner as well. Right. So I really, I really look yeah. forward to that second part of this. Yeah, and just you know, on the, the on a end note, as far as with the systems, systems shouldn't be. You should make it your own. Uh, it will make mm-hmm. the experience. It's not something that should limit somebody. It should improve the quality of the service that your patient has. And right. as a result, it attracts more people. So a lot of times people think of systems and they say it's, it's such a scary thing or they don't like it or being bound or using scripts or anything along that lines. It, you start from somewhere and then you own it and then you bring it to life. Um, and, and that's really the takeaway when we're looking at systems of going into that next episode. It's, it's really, really important. And, um, and it shouldn't be something that, that, that stagnates, stagnates people. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, we're going to catch up hopefully next week. We'll see if we can, but we're going to get you back on to talk, to talk about, um, where you're at now. And like I mentioned before, how you got there and what things you changed. And then, uh, that'll be part two of this podcast. Uh, Robert, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Josh. Thank you. You got it. And we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. All right. Bye-bye. This was a Chinese Medicine Network's podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and free and paid content, visit AccuVids.com. And make sure to join our Facebook group. Just search Chinese Medicine Networks. Thank you all for listening.